0: Good morning, great day to be together and uh, the stage looks wonderful, the decorations are tremendous, it makes you think back in life at different gifts or memories that are precious to you, that's what this season often does to us, it causes us to to turn around, look behind and to think about memories and experiences you've had in years gone by. For me, one of my sweetest memories is uh, going deer hunting with my dad as a young boy and he would give me my own pair of binoculars and what most young children do when they get a pair of binoculars is they go very quickly from looking to for a deer to just playing with the range settings you know zooming in zooming out focusing in focusing out our text this morning of psalm 138 psalm 138 is a text in which david zooms in on the greatness of god And upon looking in at the person and and work of, of God, of the Lord, of Yahweh, the personal God of creation, he's captivated with this reality of looking and focusing upon God to say, I am all in for you. That's my only reasonable response, is to be all in for you. And then in looking and zooming in to God, he's overwhelmed to realize that God deserves even more than all the praise that he can give. God deserves all the praise. Yahweh deserves all the praise of all of His creation. All of His creation, from from kings and governments to young to old, all of His creation. He's worthy of all being all in for Him. As he approaches the final few verses of this psalm, Psalm 138, he zooms back onto his own life and says, but nevertheless, this is what I will do. I will not forget who you are. I will stand in your goodness. Please do not forget me. So like those binoculars, we're going to begin in this text, Psalm 138, zooming into the nature of God and realizing you and I have only one rational response, and that is to be a people who are all in for the Lord, all in for Yahweh. And then we're going to see, again, the reality that we are called by looking at the greatness and magnificence of God to say that all ought to be all in for the Lord. That to not be all in for the Lord is to rob him of what is rightly his, a lifestyle of thanksgiving and praise. But at the end of the day, we have to say, I can't speak for others, I can only speak for myself. What kind of commitment will I make before the Lord? How will I stand before my God? I desire to be all in. We desire to be a church that is all in for the Lord. So, as you have your Bibles, let's begin. And I should say, are you ready or are your binoculars ready? As we notice, first and foremost, let's zoom in together in verses 1 through 3 as we see that the Lord alone, Yahweh alone, is worthy of all of my thanksgiving. And there's two components of this. Two components in verse 1 through 3 that caused David to say, Yes, God truly is worthy of all of us being all in, of me specifically being all in for him. And first and foremost, that's that his character is so great that I am all in for him. David will observe his character and say, it's so great that I must be all in for him. Look at verse 1 and 2. Read that from the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible, you can always use one from the pew back in front of you. It reads in this way. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And again, every time we see L-O-R-D in capitalization, that's speaking of Yahweh, the personal name of God. So out of respect, it's oftentimes in our translations, capital L-O-R-D. His character is so great that it demands all of us to be all in for him. And if you look in verse 1 and 2, we notice there is these two aspects that seem to be contradictory, but they're not. The first is a bold, public confession. David says here, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. It's a very public act of boldness that David has. He says in front of everybody, in front of all the powers of the world, governing powers, but also spiritual forces and spiritual powers, all the gods of the pagan nations, all demonic forces, everything. I will stand forward and I will praise Your name, Yahweh. So there's this public confession. Partnered with it is a physical submission. Look what it says. Verse 2. I bow down toward Your holy temple and give thanks to Your name. Public confession and yet physical submission, public confession and physical submission. This is much the lifestyle of the believer. It seems like it's a contradiction. a public confession that says, "I am yours, Yahweh, and you are mine, and I am unashamed to be yours and with my family and my friends and my coworkers and where you've placed me in life, I will give confession of who you are, and I will not be ashamed. And then, on the other hand, there's this physical submission that says, I am owned by you. I am yours. I am yours. This is actually a consistent statement through the, all the Psalms and all the New Testament, for that matter, that the life of being a follower of Christ is marked by saying, Lord, I am yours, and yet I am owned by you. I am yours and yet I am owned by you. This is what Paul echoes in 1 Corinthians 6. We were, we were bought with a price. We are not our own, so honor God with our bodies. He gives us list of various temptations that, that try to entrap us. He says, no, 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 you, believer, are not your own. You're Yahweh's. Public confession and a life of consistent submission to the Lord. This is who he is. Why? Look at verse 2. And I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This is the the loyal love of God. You've heard this word probably in Hebrew, this hesed, hesed. It's this covenant faithful, the fact that God is faithful to his promises. His loyal love to his people. All those that are wrapped up in who he is. He is the promise-keeping God. He is faithful to his word. We live in a world of promise-breaking. We all break our promises to some extent. We can make great promises, but we're limited in our nature and our understanding. So I could say to my my, my boys, I could say, I'll be here always for you, but can I actually deliver on that promise? Can I promise that my health won't fail? No, I can't. We are a people that even when we make great promises and great proclamations, we're not always promised that we have the abilities to follow through with them promise breaking is a part of who we are by being limited and being finite. But God is so great. Yahweh is so good that He is the promise keeping God. It's often in life when we experience the disappointments and the shallowness. When we have promises broken that were given to us that cause us to realize the goodness and the sweetness of a God who is covenant keeping, of a God who is loyal to His promises. That's what makes the people of God the people of God. It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we always keep our word. It's that we worship the one who will never leave us and never forsake us. We worship the one who is Hesed, he is loyal love towards his word. He will never abandon himself. He's not unchanging. His mind does not drift, he doesn't forget. He is the covenant faithful God. That you can place your life and, and trust yourself to. And that's what David does. He looks to God and he's captivated. He says, you have exalted above all things, your name and your word, Yahweh. Above all things, your name and your word. The name of God is like his presence. His domain. It's above all. As he looks to God, he's drawn in. His binoculars zoom in to the nature of God and he says, I am called to be all in. I must be all in for you because you're above all things. Does that make sense? I am called to be all in because your name and your goodness is above all things. The religion of man has the idea of cleaning ourselves up of climbing our way to the top. But Yahweh is already at the top, and He's not going anywhere. But all who trust in Him, the covenant faithful God, they're already at the top. Not because of their status, but because they're entrusted in the faithful promise of God to bring a people for His own possession from the line of Abram, that we would be one in Christ, Forgiven, redeemed, made like the sand in the shore. Our king is good. You can give thanks because the character of your God, the only reasonable response is to go all in for God. His character is so great that I am all in and also I have not forgotten his faithfulness. Look at verse 3. The response for David is to say, God, I am all in for you and I have not forgotten your faithfulness. This is actually incredibly fascinating. Look what he says in verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me, David says. My strength of soul, you you increase. Now David doesn't tell us which struggle he's writing from. Maybe he wrote this before he ever became king, while he was a young shepherd boy fighting off wild animals. Perhaps it was when Saul tried to take his life, or Absalom turned against him and tried to kill him as well. Or perhaps it was one of the dozens and dozens of examples when pagan nations were trying to to encroach upon Israel. We don't know. But we do know that David makes a cry out to God, and God does something in particular. Do you see that? My strength of soul you increased. My strength of soul you increased. God didn't necessarily remove him from the trial and the trouble, but God increased and strengthened his soul and endurance while he was in the trouble. God is worthy for all of us to be all in for him because of his character and because we're not to forget his faithfulness. And sometimes in our life, that means depending upon him in such a way that says, God, I I believe you and I trust you and I am yours, even if you have fit for me to remain in this trial or this trouble. Look over in your Bibles, uh, keep this marked, but look over into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. I think they're coupled so well together. When we look at texts like this, it's a reminder that it's not always the situation in our life that God hopes to redeem or plans to redeem. But it's the people that He leaves in the situation that He hopes to change. And to shape and to sharpen more and more into his image. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10, Paul echoes a prayer that he has prayed multiple times. And he gives us a blessing of an insight into the prayer and the understanding of a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. That there are hurts and times in our life in which we will seek the Lord and say, Lord, please deliver me. Please remove me from this situation. Or please remove this situation from me. And yet Yahweh and his goodness will say no. But just like David processes it and say, when I cried out to you, you strengthened my soul. Look what Paul says when God says, I'm not going to take that away from you. I'm going to leave you with it. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the cry of the believer. This is why we're to be all in for Christ. Because the character of God is unfailing. But also, the Lord, in His sovereign wisdom and goodness, He knows whether to pluck us out of a situation or to pluck a situation away from us or to say, I'm leaving you there because I want to sharpen you there into my image. Yahweh is the God that you can know, Yahweh is the God that desires to know you. When we focus our lives upon Him, we're left with one reasonable response. And it's to say, God, I am all in, but you are so magnificent and you are so grand that it causes us, when we look at the greatness and the heat and the intensity of God, like being close to an incredibly strong bonfire, the response of zooming in and saying, wow, this is powerful, I have to step back. That's what David does in our next verses. He looks at God and says, whoa, God, you deserve all of me. You deserve to consume me, but also you deserve to consume all of them and all of them. Look at the, how the verse continues on. Look at how our verses continue on in this text. It moves us to the second idea that the Lord is alone is worthy of my thanksgiving, but also as we zoom out in verses 4 through 6, that Yahweh, the Lord alone, is worthy of all mankind's thanksgiving. He's worthy of all my thanks, and He's also worthy of all mankind's thanksgiving. Two components. The first is that you alone, Yahweh, you alone deserve all to be all in for you. All to be all in for you. 4 and 5, again, as a reminder, it reads this. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, Yahweh, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of Yahweh. For great is the glory of Yahweh. I have a question for you. Verse 5. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord. At the end of verse 4, for they have heard the words of your mouth. Have all the kings of the earth heard the words of the mouth of the Lord? There's an instinct that says, well, no. Maybe. But at this time, probably not. But the text is written in a way that's in the, it's in the perfect tense. The idea is that it is so sure to happen. It's so going to happen. You can so take it to the bank. But the greatness of God is so great that all the kings of the earth, like a tsunami of, of greatness, the greatness of the Lord will cover them over. And they will be left humbled and to do nothing but to humble themselves and to sing praise to the Lord. His greatness is so great that it envelops all the peaks of man's greatness. In Psalm 9.5, you can write that reference down, we're not going to look at it, but in Psalm 9.5, the same idea is done with the judgment of God. That the judgment of God will be poured out upon the wicked perfectly. As a future, but a present application. So in that text, if you look around and say, well, the wicked appear to be having a good time. What do you mean the the wrath of God is poured out upon them? It's it's so assured that it will happen that it speaks of it like it happened or is happening. The greatness of God is so great that all of the world will come to a confession and understanding that he is great. It says they will sing his praise. All the peoples of the earth have a, a multitude of lifestyles. We all fizzle in our own different way, right? As Americans or here in East Texas, we all have our own way that pride fizzles up. And for me, I've discovered one of those is your boots, right? So I got these boots when I moved here. There are some good-looking boots. But I have been complimented on these boots more time than I've ever been complimented on shoes in my entire life. I've had people I've never met before tell me, oh, nice boots, I've never had my shoes complimented as a grown man in my life until I got these boots, and I'm proud of these boots. But we all in our life have our own distinct cultures. What the greatness of Yahweh does in different people in different cultures and different languages, the greatness of Yahweh comes. They're confronted with the gospel, the good news of Christ it causes their ways to begin to change to the ways of the Lord. They begin to live as Christ in that culture, for the glory of God. Look over in Acts nine. Keep this marked, but look over in Acts chapter nine. In Acts chapter nine, verse one and two, Paul is giving his orders. He's giving his request to be able to go and to persecute these believers who seem to be enveloped in this way of life called the way. The way. And we'll see it. It goes to the Jewish people and the Gentile people and the Samaritan people and people of all different lifestyles and beliefs. They begin to hear of Jesus. They begin to hear the news that if you turn and trust in in Jesus Christ, the God-man, that you can be forgiven and have peace and reconciliation with God Because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He's lived the sinless life you haven't lived. He laid his life down on the cross. He defeated death and he rose again from the grave. And if you will trust in him, you will be forgiven and adopted into Christ. You will have eternal life and you will reign with him. And you will live for him today. Because you are his. This news is spread around and it begins to envelop these Jewish individuals. And their lives begin to be captivated by the way the way verse 5 as a reminder said in psalm 138 and they shall sing of the ways of the lord but notice in acts 9 1 through 2 what he calls the people who are now following after christ it says but 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 Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord they went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at damascus so that if he found any belonging to who? To the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The call to Christ is not a debate. It's not a discussion with the king of kings and the kings of this earth. It's not diplomacy that dances around. It's a tsunami Requiring submission of our ways to the way. The call to come to Christ isn't, do you like your life? If you don't like it, here's an upgrade. The call to come to Christ and the gospel says, you love your life, you surrender it. And entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, the King of kings. For he is the way. He is the way. That's the greatness of what God causes us to do. When we zoom in on God's greatness, it causes, it forces us to have a missionary perspective that says others likewise. It's for you as well. I'm not going to speak into the details of, I'm sure you're familiar with John Chow and the missionary who gave his life. People are debating, should he have gone to these people? Knowing that they would probably kill him. What you cannot debate is the fact that this man believed wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ is the way. And he was willing to go all in. God has placed every one of us in a unique position and place. The desire for, for us as his people and the command for us as his people to say, Lord, as I look at my life, is there an area where I am simply living my way? Not the way. Is there an area of my life where I'm not singing the ways of the Lord, but I'm holding on with all my grip to my way? Spirit, would you convict me and show me those areas of my life? Because we all have them, myself, with a bullet absolutely included. A characteristic of those that come to realize that that He alone is worthy of having all be all in for Him is this. In verse 6, That those who are all in do not need to elevate themselves. Those who are all in. We say, how do I know if I'm all in right now in my life? And then, by the way, what this does, what the Lord's word does to us is what? It causes us to ask this question every hour, doesn't it? Because today we say, yes, I'm all in. And then tomorrow morning we say, what? What was it? What am I doing again? Right. Where's my coffee? Verse 6, here's the marker as you look at your life. Those who are all in do not need to elevate themselves. Look at verse 6. For though Yahweh, for the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, the proud, he knows from afar. For the Lord is high, but he regards the lowly. I think this naturally for us is this. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I need to clean myself up first before I come to the Lord. To interact with the Lord will bring us lowly. It brings us humility. If you don't believe me, just look around. You think you're, you're great. Then all of a sudden you, you, you interact with somebody that may be better at your job or better at a different area of life and you say, whoa. Whoa is me, right? You start to feel humbled. When we look to Yahweh, we're all humbled. The call is to come to Christ the way you are. And He will make you Humbly lowly. That doesn't mean self deprecating. It doesn't mean putting yourself down. It means having an honest view of who He is. It, it will humble us. I want to give you three little S's, three little reminders that can keep us humbled. The first is our salvation. If you're struggling with being humbled and lowly, remember your salvation. Our salvation as followers of Jesus Christ is that we are saved, we are rescued by grace. Grace's unearned favor, the free gift of the Lord, that He lavishes, He pours upon us. You were saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of the Lord. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's 100% the spilt blood of Jesus Christ for us that pays our debt. It's not 99% Jesus and 1% me. The only thing I bring to the equation and you bring to the equation is your sin and your brokenness. Our salvation is of the Lord. That while we were yet sinners against God, rebels and haters of the Lord, He would redeem us. He in His love, the Father, would send the Son who would take on flesh. He would dwell among us. He would lay his life down for us in obedience to the Father, that the wrath of God that should have been poured on us was poured upon his Son, Jesus Christ, as a make right sacrifice for us, so that our guilt and our shame was taken away at the cross. And all that looked to Christ, all that looked to Christ, will be forgiven. And as you look to Christ, you're his. You've been adopted. There is no chest beating with an adopted rebel. There is lowliness because of our salvation. Salvation should be a mark of lowliness in our lives. If you're struggling with lowliness and humility, remember salvation. But secondly, there's servant-minded saints. The second S. There's servant-minded saints that the Lord gives us as the gift of the local church. The gift of the local church, we pray, is marked by servant-minded saints who are on a weekly and regular basis looking at our lives honestly and saying, have you thought about how the gospel impacts this area of your life, Brent? They're massaging the gospel into our lives. So our children have godly teachers that are loving them on a consistent basis to help give the gospel in addition to what their parents are doing. Servant-minded saints are able to speak into our lives and wound us for the gospel. What a mark of humility. If you don't have people like that in your life, dig deeper. Dig deeper in fellowship. We need them. If we don't have them, we will slip into pride, not humility. Salvation, servant-minded saints, and the Spirit of God, the third S, The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, He indwells all believers when they come to Christ. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, He indwells us and He convicts us. He comforts us, but He convicts us. He searches us. He speaks to us in abundance through the goodness of His God-breathed, Spirit-breathed Word. And He touches the areas of our life that we could never know. One of the the joys of being able to preach to you on a weekly basis is that it's not uncommon. It's got nothing to do with me. But it's not uncommon that on the same Sunday I'll get a text from somebody into their retirement years that says, wow, that was just like it, ooh, just got me right where I needed to be gotten. And Then I'll have somebody much younger that will say the same thing. Totally different backgrounds Totally different generations. Yet the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to speak into our lives and to bring us lowly for His kingdom and His goodness. Thank God that our church is called Grace Bible Church and not Works Bible Church, right? Thank God that we're not called Works Bible Church because none of us could get in. None of us are righteous. But grace will make us lowly. Oh, that the Lord would consistently massage that truth into our life. First, we see that the Lord alone is worthy of my thanksgiving. Second, the Lord alone is worthy of all mankind's thanksgiving. And this third truth is really a summary to Psalm 100 and Psalm 138 in this small little mini-series. And it's this. Thanksgiving theology, that's a belief of God. Thanksgiving theology should fuel daily doxology, which just means praise. A sound theology, a sound belief of thanksgiving should fuel a lifestyle of praise. Doxa, praise. A sound theology of thanksgiving should fuel a life of th- praise. Our lives on our own are very much like our cultures. Thursday, Thanksgiving. It's good to be together. Friday, Black Friday, get out of my way, I'm getting that TV. (laughs) Every one of us in our heart has a Thanksgiving and Black Friday mix, doesn't it? Every one of us knows that tension, that feeling, that says, mine! I've got to get it! So how does Thanksgiving theology lead into a sound life of praise? and thanksgiving. Here it is. Look at verse 7. Here's what it doesn't mean and here's what it does mean. First, what it doesn't mean. Yahweh's faithfulness, the Lord's faithfulness, does not mean we won't face trouble. Verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand, it delivers me. The Lord's faithfulness doesn't mean we won't face trouble. The Lord's faithfulness means He will never leave us or abandon us while we're in trouble. A misunderstanding of that theological truth will cause you more confusion in your life than you'll ever know. More heartache in your life than you can ever believe. There's a difference between being assured and being self-assured. There's a difference between being assured and being self-assured. To be assured means that you know the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. That you are Christ's and Christ is yours. And there's your assurance as you trust in Christ. Self-assurance looks to ourself and says, I know I'm good in these areas. I've got this. People can say that all day long, but they know they can't give themselves permanent assurance. In Isaiah chapter 40, i will read these few verses for you. Isaiah 40, verse 28 through 31. Isaiah 40 through 48 begins this incredible text. I'd encourage you to read it. I'd encourage you to read the whole Bible, but I encourage you to read Isaiah 40, right, 40 through 48. This text is absolutely amazing. It's as though Yahweh and, and all the gods of the nations are on trial. And I think we get a good picture between being assured and being self-assured. Bill Flynn, who who, who read this text for us on our night of Thanksgiving, that Sunday night service we had, he noted the fact that the Lord in the second person is used some 20 times back in Psalm 138. Listen to the difference between assurance and self-assurance. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard that Yahweh is the everlasting God? The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. That's assurance, church. Pure self-assurance. Even youths shall faint and, and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, their self-assurance. Here it comes. Now now we bring it back to assurance. But they who wait for the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Self-assurance will rob you, but assurance will give you peace through the storms of life that He will never leave you through as you walk through them. Rest in Christ, weary one today. The Lord's faithfulness doesn't mean we won't face trouble. So what does His character mean? Here's what it means. The Lord's character does mean that He will never forsake His people. He will never forsake His people. Verse 8, The Lord will fulfill His purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of Your hands. Like binoculars, That zoomed in on the goodness of the Lord with his commitment. Zoomed out on those all around him. It zooms back and it says, this is what I'm going to do. Because of who you are. Because of who you are, Lord. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it endures forever. I like how the New King James here says, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. It doesn't mean that you and I are as believers in Jesus Christ are to be passive in life. But it does mean as we trust him as we walk through trials and temptations and troubles of life that we have a king who is working purpose in pain. The faithful love of the Lord, his word and his promise that it will endure forever. And what's the very final line of Psalm 138 say? What's it say? Do not forsake the work of your hands. He knows the Lord won't forsake the work of his hands, but what's he say? Do not forsake the work of your hands. The God of the universe is not too busy for your problems. The anxieties of your life are not too petty for your king. The sin in your life is not too great for Yahweh. His hands and his purposes are so great that in the midst of troubles, he will give us endurance. His goodness and his kindness are so great that my prayer for you is while you suffer and you grieve, you would take comfort Because He will never forget you. The fact that He cares might shape our lives. Do you know Yahweh? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the one that we're actually thankful for and to? Next steps. I give you next steps because I pray that there'll be a tool for discussion as you go home. So kids... You should know this, kids that are in the service today, we'd love to have you, but you should know when your parents or grandparents pick you up, they need to share their next steps with you. They have homework every Sunday. Here's the next steps questions that I pray will help you take those next steps to apply them into your life. The first is this, is there an area in my life that I know is making it hard for me to say with a clear conscience that I'm all in? Is there an area in my life that I know, as we're talking about this idea of being all in, I know there's an area that says, nope, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give that. And my encouragement to you in just a moment, we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper together. My encouragement is there's no greater way to talk to the Lord about that than right now. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper together. To gain a clear conscience. Before we recall and we remember the blood that was spilled in the body that was broken for us. To make us one with Him and one together with the bride of Christ. Is there an area in my life that I know is making it hard for me to say with a clear conscience that I'm all in? And second question is this. Has there been a past season of trouble that the Lord has shown Himself faithful in my life that I need to record lest it be forgotten? In our new member class, We'll have one of those. We'll meet right over here in the, the first room on the left when you walk into the kids' building. But in our new member class, we have a, this is a two-part class. <clears throat> and then we ask that you would share your testimony with an elder at some point. And some people write it down, and here's what we found. Is that, be, that becomes one of the sweetest times together because we see how the Lord has been faithful In a host of people's lives, some from violence, some from drugs, some he's just been faithful since they were so young, the Lord would show his saving grace upon them. But is there an area of your life as you look back that you say, you know what, the Lord has been faithful, but I've never told a person about this? There's an area of your life where you feel like, you know what, I have forgotten the Lord. He, He did that for me. Don't forget him. Write that down this week. And share it, because our Lord is faithful and good. As the servers come forward, the Lord's Supper is an intentional time of remembrance. The Lord's Supper is an intentional time of remembrance. The very last idea we said, to recall the areas in life that you may have been tempted to forget. The very last line that David writes in Psalm 138, the very last line, please do not forget me. Our King Jesus Christ, who came and lived a sinless life, who laid his life down on the cross and calls us to go and to make disciples of all nations, unashamedly, to proclaim the gospel, to teach people, to baptize them, to train them in all the things that the Lord has taught. He gives his church, he gives the body this intentional action of remembrance that they would come together They would celebrate the Lord and they would remember him as a time of remembering. As life gets busy, it's so easy to forget what we're doing. It's so easy to forget our purpose. What the Lord's Supper does for us is this gift that God gives us to stop and to remember. To refix our eyes upon the King. And that's why this is a gift given to all Believers, if you know Christ, this is for you. And you're in right standing with the Lord. This is for you. If you've not confessed faith in Christ, this is not for you. But we ask that as it passes around, that in this way it would be as symbolic to you. If you've not trusted Christ, as, as the cups come around, the cups and the bread, they're in two cups. As those around you take them and you let it pass by, let it be itself a gospel reminder that the goodness of the Lord is meant to be celebrated by all peoples. He calls us all to be all in. And partaking of the drink together and the body together as one body is itself a reminder and a testimony that the Lord's gift is offered to all of us. But we must come to Him. Eating and drinking. Coming and believing. He is good. And He's worthy of your life. Do you know the King? Is there an area of your life that there might be an issue of pride or Uh, who doesn't struggle with that? Is there an area of your life that you know is impacting fellowship with other believers? And if there is, reconcile. Use this as a time to reset and to remember the goodness of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're going to distribute in just a moment. As we distribute, you'll take the cup and you'll hold it because we're going to partake as one body together. And we're going to remember the Lord's body that was broken for us and the Lord's blood that was spilled for us so that our body does not need to be broken and our blood does not need to be spilled because the Lord Jesus Christ, his body was perfectly broken for us and his blood was sufficiently spilled for us on our behalf so that we might become the sons of God in Christ.